This is episode number 39 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell and Anita Lambert, and we're both very excited today to have another expert guest on. Um, many of you may be familiar with her. So Rebecca Decker is the founder and author of Evidence-Based Birth. Dr. Decker received her PhD and Master of Science in Nursing from the University of Kentucky. Rebecca has built a strong reputation in maternal and infant health circles for her pioneering work as the founder of Evidence-Based Birth. The mission of EBB is to raise the quality of childbirth care globally by putting accurate evidence-based research into the hands of families and communities so that they can make informed, empowered choices. In May 2012, Dr. Decker realized that this was very difficult for the average person to find information about evidence-based maternal care. Realizing that she had the research and writing skills to meet this need, she coined the term evidence-based birth and founded evidencebasedbirth.com. In addition to being a prolific writer and teacher, Rebecca is married to her husband, Dan, and mother to three young children. So thank you so much, Rebecca, for being on. We know you are super busy, um, but really glad to have you on to share your expert knowledge. So can you share a little bit more about evidence-based birth and kind of how it got started? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be on the To Birth and Beyond podcast um, so I started Evan Space Birth, as you said, in 2012, and really it was right after the birth of my second baby. And to, I have to go back a little bit for you to understand, with my first birth, I kind of had a very typical childbirth experience where I was um, made to lay in bed the whole time, not allowed to eat and drink, and just a lot of things happened to me that later on I ended up questioning, like, what was the evidence on that? Because I was getting my PhD at the time. After I had my first baby, I was able to go back and look at the research, and I was really surprised to find that a lot of that was done to me has been shown by research evidence to be harmful even to healthy mothers and healthy babies. So I then made a whole series of decisions, had to work really hard to access what I felt was evidence-based care, care that supported my wishes and offered a lot of different options other than just laying in a bed. And... Um, worked really hard to get that kind of birth. And after it was all done, I was the, the contrast between those two care experiences was so vast that I, I look, kept looking at my new baby and he was a super chunky baby. He was like nine pounds, two ounces. And I just kept thinking like, why can't more people have this kind of care? Like where you feel respected and empowered and so I basically just looked up at my husband. I was like, I'm starting a blog. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and so I brainstormed some names. I loved the name Evidence-Based Birth. I registered the domain and just started like 
posting, basically sharing all of the research that I'd been collecting in preparation for this pregnancy. So after my first baby was born, there was a gap of more than three years before my next was born because I had several miscarriages. So I had lots of time to collect research and I just started posting it. And then it just kind of each post was shared. And then each month the traffic kind of kept doubling. And I was just like, oh my gosh, look how many people, like I thought maybe like maybe a dozen people would ever visit the website. So that's kind of how it got started. And then the rest is history. That's so cool. I love that it just started from your experience and grew into this incredible organization that you now run. I think it was so interesting. One of the main points that you said during that, and we'll get to this more as we go on, but you had to fight so hard to have that next birth experience be different. And it was with evidence-based information. Can you explain to us what evidence-based care is? Sure. So most people, like when they think of evidence-based care, they think of care that's based on the best research evidence. But as I know, Anita learned right at the Savvy Birth Pro workshop, there's actually three components to evidence-based care. It's not just the research. That's one part of it. But if all you have is based your care on research and evidence, that can become like a bad dictator. Um, There's actually two more really important components. One is that you have a healthcare professional who stays up to date on the latest evidence, can help you interpret the evidence, make sure it applies to your unique clinical situation. And then the third part is that you that they actively ask you about and respect your values, goals and preferences so that they actually literally care what you want. And so that was actually not made up out of thin air by me. That came out of the founders of evidence-based medicine who were actually in Canada in the early 1990s. So that's where that definition comes from. Yeah, that's amazing. I love how you share, because I think a lot of people, when they hear evidence-based, they assume it's just research and there's no other, I like how you talk about kind of legs on a stool, like they don't really realize there's other parts. Um, And I also really like how you talk about, even with knowing those three aspects that each of us can have our own bias when we're looking at evidence-based, for example, you talk about minimalist versus maximalist, that kind of thing with healthcare. Um, can you share a bit more just what that means? And just so our listeners know, they may look at the evidence differently than, let's say, their sister or their mother or their friend. So one of the books that I read that really opened my mind to the whole idea of bias in medical decision-making was a book called Your Medical Mind by uh, Dr. Groupman and Dr. Hartsband. And it's all about how different people make different decisions based on their values and biases. And for example, you mentioned minimalists and maximalists. Like some people are minimalists. They really believe in doing like that less is better. You know, and so you you don't want to interfere. And then maximalist is someone who's like, throw everything you can at it. You know, like I want all the interventions. And then the interesting thing about birth, though, is somebody could be like a maximalist with healthcare in general, but like a minimalist when it comes to birth. Um, and then there's other biases and values that, that you can have that they go into more detail with your medical mind. But one of the things that I learned is that what we, what I see a lot of now as a childbirth educator, as well as a nurse, is a mismatch between your tendencies towards making healthcare decisions and often the provider or healthcare professional's tendency. And so if you have a mismatch between the client and the provider, um, that can end up causing stress and friction at the birth. Yes, yes. 
That is, yeah, you're bringing up flashbacks for me from my first birth with uh, our doula specifically. Can you talk to us about how evidence-based care differs from routine care? So routine care is care that's based more on tradition and clinical opinion. It's like the status quo. Like we do this because we've always done this. Evidence-based care really, you when you're practicing evidence-based care as a clinician, you want to be constantly kind of questioning your practices and saying, well, what does the research say? Like are we really doing what's best Uh or, or are we just taking a tradition and applying it to everybody because that's the tradition without really stopping to question, is this best? So routine care, I mean, it obviously differs where you're living, where you live, you know, like, for example, some parts of Canada have care that is just leaps and, you know, bounds beyond and better than what we have in the United States. But there's other parts where there are perhaps um, traditions, routines, practices that um, limit evidence-based care. So where I happen to live is in Kentucky, which is the southeastern part of the United States. Um, There still tends to be a large emphasis on this is the way we've always done it and less emphasis on what does research say is best. Now, don't get me wrong, like they don't ignore all the research evidence. And, and in fact, one thing that you'll often hear hospitals say is, well, we practice evidence-based care. We don't allow any inductions before 39 weeks. Like we don't do early elective inductions. I'm like, well, that's just one aspect of evidence-based care that you're following. Like you need to look at your whole practices across the board. What are your policies and procedures? Do women have access to midwifery care? Um, do they have tubs? Does every, is every woman offered a tub to labor in? Are women encouraged to eat and drink? Are they up and moving around? Are you using intermittent auscultation instead of the continuous fetal monitor? There's a whole range of practices that need to be looked at to see, like, are we doing what evidence supports? Or are we just doing things because this is always the way we've done it? How long does it take for that evidence really to become root, called routine care? Have you noticed a, a trend with that? So the earlier research we had, we don't have any current research on that, and it may be different now, but in the past, uh, the American government has actually said it takes 15 to 20 years on average when they kind of collect all the research and look at it, which makes sense. Like as a nurse and a researcher, I saw that happen with little things like, uh, have you ever heard of like the saline lock or the HEP lock that they put in your arm um, and then kind of cap it off and don't hook it up? Well, the reason they call it HEP lock is because they used to flush it with heparin, which is a blood thinner. But it was actually a nurse researcher who led a huge randomized control trial that found that just saline or salt water um, resulted in good outcomes like that, you know, for that keeping that little saline lock, they call it now, in place. But even after this large randomized trial came out showing that, and and the, the problem with heparin is that there's a risk that you could make a drug mistake and give the wrong dose of heparin and then literally kill someone. So nurses discovered this hey, we should be using saline instead of heparin. It took 15 years for the saline lock to become the standard of care, even though we knew it could save people's lives and it was cheap and easy to switch to. Now, that was um, a while ago. Now, today, we're not sure how quickly change happens. It may there it may be that with social media that there could be a more rapid turnover with research turning into practice, but... 
on average in the past, it took anywhere from 15 to 20 years for evidence-based care to become routine. That is wild. I had a client in California who was telling me story of her second birth and she had to be on the hospital bed was not able to leave the hospital bed when she was in active labor and this was last year maybe 2016 2016 probably and it's just so wild to me i mean i hear these stories and more so from my clients who are in the united states versus in canada but it's just so interesting to me that these kinds of things are still happening and that it is hospital policy that she needed to be on the bed. Is this common? Yes. So, yeah, staying in bed is, is you know, the tradition. It's the routine. Um, you feel like I think the staff feel like they're partly more in control, but also they can get a better reading on the continuous fetal monitor. Now, one of the things that um, Canada really benefits from is their midwifery organizations are really strong and issue strong recommendations and guidelines so that I think the midwives really do feel like they can practice based on best evidence. Of course, one of the main problems you face is access to that midwifery care, right? In some places, it's it's easily accessible. In other places, it's not available at all or there's like a huge long waiting list. So in that case... Um, you know, the routine care is the medical model and the midwifery model of care isn't available to many people. Does that sound right? Am I, uh-huh. am I on the right track? Yeah. Yeah. You have to apply. I mean, for, I know for both of my pregnancies, I did have midwifery care, thankfully, but I had to apply immediately. Like the minute you find out you're pregnant, you go to the, you go to the application. You don't tell anyone else. You go to the yeah. application. Yeah, no, I was the same pretty much like pee on the stick and then try to get a midwife and then tell your partner after that point. So it's and even some provinces here. Yeah, the accessibility to midwifery care, but even how midwives are integrated into the system is different um, province to province. Yeah. And, and, you know, evidence clearly shows that the midwifery led model of care is better for the health of women and there's no difference in newborn outcomes. So it should be available and accessible to anybody who wants that. This, this answer for the next question probably has many, many factors, but what are the challenges to getting evidence-based care in the maternity system? There's actually research on this topic. So they look to see like, why is it so hard to get evidence-based care? And one of those things is sometimes people just don't know about the research. So uh, clinicians are very busy, very overworked, overwhelmed, and it's really, it's quite literally impossible to stay on top of all of the research. So just not being aware of the new evidence, um, not liking the new evidence or preferring the status quo might be a reason like there's no, why should we change? I don't think it's going to make a difference. So why bother changing um, is another reason. And then um, one of the reasons that isn't hasn't really been studied, but from my experience in speaking with people across the United States and Canada, it's this whole concept of the power hierarchy, where you have people in charge at the top who have a lot of power over the choices of people lower down on the hierarchy, and some administrators or um, government body may make a decision that then limits the freedom of people beneath them. And that's especially common in hospitals because hospitals in general were formed as military institutions a long time ago. Like it used to be the only hospitals were battlefield hospitals, right? 
hospitals didn't exist before um, battles and wars made them necessary. And so they have a very military-like structure where you have one person reporting to someone, reporting to someone. And it's very hard for people at the bottom of that structure, the nurses, even the midwives, and definitely the families to get any changes enacted. For example, I just interviewed a mom from Ohio in the United States, and she had uh, an experience where she was forced into a cesarean for a, a breech position baby, and um, they wouldn't offer her, even though she was a candidate, a vaginal trial of birth. Um, and when she tried to make a difference afterwards, like she was like, all she wanted to do was have a meeting with hospital administrators to talk about it. They just point blank refused to meet with her. And so it's really hard when you're at the bottom, but you're at the one who's most affected by these policies and you don't have a say. So I really feel like that's probably the biggest barrier is, is when the people at the bottom just don't have a voice or don't have the power to create the changes that are needed. And I feel like kind of woven into a lot of things we've been talking about is consent. And I know a lot of times, um, I think the general public feels that consent forms equals informed consent. So I was wondering if you can explain a bit more about informed consent, informed refusal, and if you find these are actually happening in the maternity system. Yeah, so informed consent is um, it's a medical concept. It's a legal concept. It's an ethical concept. Um, and it's really simple. The definition kind of boils down to the two words. So the word informed, meaning you were given information, complete and full and accurate information and the word consent, which means you have the ability to say yes or no without pressure or coercion. So you have to be able to give consent freely and the right to informed consent also includes the right to informed refusal. So you don't have the right to say yes if you don't have the right to say no, like you have to have both rights. So that is something that is is really important and yes people do get confused Kristen Pascucci developed that link that part of the class that um, you attended the Savvy Birth Pro workshop and um, she explains how a lot of people think the that document you sign when you come into the hospital gives them permission to do whatever they want to you but actually it doesn't like the con consent document is supposed to that's it it's supposed to document that you had a conversation if you didn't have a conversation about something you couldn't consent like consent's an ongoing communication process it's not like a a piece of paper and the medical professions are pretty clear about that fact but medical professionals aren't as familiar with that concept a lot of them think all you need is that signature and then you can do whatever you want to the patient Yes. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that it is an ongoing conversation. I hear f from lots of moms around the world who feel like they were coerced into doing specific things or having specific things done to their body. What advice do you give people who are in those scenarios to, uh, to voice their opinions, to stand up for themselves, to, to stick to their values? A couple of things. Uh, one, it would be nice if you can avoid that kind of situation entirely by picking the right provider and birth setting where you're going to give birth. Uh, but if that's not possible, a lot of people don't have options. They have to birth in a certain facility or with a certain provider or they don't get to choose because the providers rotate call. In that case, I think you really have to have an actively engaged 
an informed partner who's willing to be your advocate and practice that advocacy. So I recently started teaching evidence-based birth childbirth classes. And one of the things that we do is we actually rehearse how the partner speaks with the nurse, how the partner speaks with the midwife or doctor, what kinds of phrases or words can you say if you feel like you're experiencing pressure. And so I think that that practice part of it is really important because if you think of the average, like, partner walking in with their laboring person, um, most people, for most of them, it's going to be their first experience in a facility like a hospital. Um, They've probably never had to interact with staff nurses, staff midwives, staff doctors in a hospital setting, especially when you're emotionally involved in your partner giving birth as well. So it's really important that you practice. (laughs) And I believe that it's possible and that they can speak up for the person who's giving birth, but they have to have that kind of coaching and mentoring ahead of time. And how do you do this? How do you speak up and how do you speak up respectfully? Mm -hmm. So that's what I spend a lot of time doing in my classes. I love that because absolutely it can be so nerve wracking and just take you aback when when you're in these situations. What are some maternity evidence-based care practices that are now commonly used as routine care? Well, like I, I mentioned earlier, one, one of the things that most hospitals in my area are really proud of is the fact that they don't electively induce before 39 weeks. That used to be incredibly common, and we now know it increases the chance of NICU admission and death for the baby. So um, I, that's kind of cool that that's changed, but it was a long, hard journey to get that to change. And it was actually interesting if you look at the research on how they created that change. They 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 studied different ways, different methods of discouraging 39-week inductions. And they found that the only method that consistently worked was something called a hard stop rule. Where the hospital's um, administrative assistant who answered the phones and scheduled the inductions was literally not allowed to schedule an induction before 39 weeks if there wasn't a medical reason. So even if the doctor ordered it, like they ha- they could only order it if there was a, a specific medical reason. And it was really interesting to me that that was the only way they could create that change was to basically say, you're not allowed to do this anymore and we're not going to let the scheduler schedule the induction. Uh, but it worked. Like research showed that it worked. And um, so that's something that's very common. I'm racking my brain to think of other things. Another one is skin to skin. Um, after the birth, that is definitely increased in popularity because of the baby friendly initiative. The research on that is so clear that it's incredibly harmful to separate babies, separate babies from mothers immediately after birth. And instead you should do skin to skin. And thankfully that is becoming more commonplace. Although it's still really difficult to get that in some parts of uh, the world, especially if you've had a cesarean. So, but that's getting better. Yeah. yeah I can great. just speak from my experience with two cesareans and there was immediate skin to skin when mom and baby were healthy. It, that was my experience. Yeah. And that was not the case like 10 years ago, right? I don't know when your babies were born, but that's been a relatively new switch. Yeah. Just within the last three years for both of them. Mm-hmm. And so Rebecca, how would you, um, How would you, in terms of expecting parents looking to gather evidence-based information, what are, how can they gather it and what questions should they ask their care provider? Oh, that's a hard one because, you know, I think so many young people today rely on Google, uh, which is both a blessing and a curse. Like, it's so cool that we have all this information at our fingertips, 
But how can a first-time parent, you know, expect to be able to discern, is this good information or bad information? And so a couple of things I encourage folks to do. One is to not hide the fact that you're reading information from your provider that you're working with. I think that you should be talking with them openly about what you're learning and reading about and choosing and deciding. Um, But I did a research time where I found most people didn't talk to their doctors about what they were researching online, which I thought was unfortunate. And the second is just to take a really good childbirth class that can really help you learn that information in kind of a a curriculum-based way. Um, Obviously, I encourage parents to come to the evidence-based birth website. But then again, like you, you said, what about asking your provider? Like that information really needs to be talked about with your provider. Like if you're reading the due dates article, evidence-based birth, and you're like, I think I want to wait till 41 weeks or 42 weeks, like that should be a decision you talk with your provider about, you know, take the info to them, say, this is what I'm thinking, um, and, and talk with them about it, have an open conversation. Um, and I, I recommend asking open-ended questions in the beginning of pregnancy, um, such as tell me about, what a typical birth looks like or what the consent process looks like later in pregnancy, you're going to want to get more detailed. Like what, what type exactly of fetal monitoring do you do? And, um, what are my options if I want to have a different type of fetal monitoring? So you're going to get more specific as the pregnancy goes on. Have you found out kind of talking to now that you're doing with the classes as well, but even before then, have you found out why people don't feel like they can share with their care providers if they are looking up information? Yeah, I think a lot of the medical model of care encourages a culture where you don't ask questions. So, for example, my sister is a family doctor. She practices very much like a midwife. And she always reserves like an hour for her prenatal appointments with her clients because she knows they're going to have so many questions. One day she went and she was a sub for an OB who couldn't make their clinic day that day. And she did all of their prenatal appointments that day. And she said not a single person asked her a question in their prenatal visits. Whenever she said, do you have any questions for me? They would just say no. And she was shocked because in her practice, she has the culture of like encouraging them to talk and be curious and explore things and discuss things with her. And all of a sudden, she she was inserted into a practice where it's not encouraged, you know, to ask questions. It's like you're expected to just do as you're told. So I think a, a lot of it is a is is create a culture that's created by the each individual practice. So I know a lot of midwives who. love that their clients ask them tons of questions. But a lot of people just feel like they're afraid to speak up. Yeah, we're trained to trust in those situations so much of the time. Right, right. Okay, Rebecca, this is all fascinating information. I'm sure this is just the tip of the iceberg and people are going to have so many more questions. So where can we find out more about evidence-based birth, your resources, the events? Yeah, so if you haven't already, I would encourage you to go to evidencebasedbirth.com. And on the main page, there's a way you can sign up to get a free crash course. It's an email course all about what is evidence-based care kind of walks you through these concepts. And that way you can share them like with your partner if you want or another professional. You can forward those emails to them with the information. 
Um, in terms of other ways to get involved, we do have um, I'm coming to Toronto on on Saturday, November 17. So if you can just Google evidence-based birth Toronto and you'll find tickets to that event. And then on February 20, I'm releasing a book. I haven't told that many people about it. So you guys are some of the first to find out. Um, I'm not going to tell you the title of the book, but um, the draft is getting really close to being done. And it's a book for young people all about kind of like their fears about birth and the history of birth and where we got to where we are today. And then like moving forward, like how you can have an empowering birth. So I'm super excited about that book. And at the same time that's coming out, we're launching our evidence-based birth childbirth class that will be available in, in 2019, starting in January in the U.S. and Canada. Um, we have both U.S. And, and quite a few Canadian instructors who are training to start offering that class. It's a d little bit different than the traditional childbirth class because we meet in person, but then the rest of your learning is online with your instructor and through watching videos. And then you meet again one last time in person to practice all of your skills. And we do a lot of the work on empowering your partner to become uh, really equipped at being able to not only keep you comfortable, use massage and techniques like that, but also to speak up for you and advocate for you. So those are some of the big things we've got going on this year, the Toronto event and then the book in February and the childbirth class also early next year. Amazing. And I love to, um, in case people don't know, is on the site, all the signature articles you have and the evidence and how you've summarized it already for people to read, but then also you can print it off and take it to your care provider and have those discussions. Um, and I also am a huge fan of the podcast too. So evidence-based birth has, you have your own podcast as well. And I think that's a great way even for people just to start getting some information um, and then dive deeper into the website because there's so many awesome resources. Yeah, and if you're interested in the articles and the specific handouts, if you go to the main evidencebasedbirth.com and click on blog, um, then you can filter the blog by what you're interested in. <clears throat> so the signature articles are kind of our big articles on each big topic, like due dates and groupie strep and vitamin K. Um, and then we also have a series about natural labor induction methods and a pain management or comfort measures series. You can click on those and it'll filter everything for you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for being on, for spending your time chatting with us and sharing this amazing information with our audience because we have quite a few um, expecting people, but also new parents as well as health uh, and fitness professionals who I know are going to soak up this information and have more questions, but it's going to get the conversation going. Thank you so much for having me. On the next episode of Two Birth and Beyond, we are talking about self-care strategies. Anita and I tell you what we do on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis to take care of ourselves during this full season of entrepreneurship and motherhood. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 